I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Damian Zubek, a partner at Crevasse, Swain and Moore. Damian, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. I hope uh, you're doing well. So we're going to talk about several things on the podcast this morning, uh, a little bit about your background, and then we're going to talk about the current state of activism, especially as it relates to ESG issues we've seen crop up in merger agreements as a result of COVID, especially in the provisions of the merger agreement that relate to MAEs and ordinary course covenants. And then finally, a little bit about your passion, which I share for wine and food. So with that, tell us a little bit about how you ended up at Cravath, how you ended up in M&A. Sure. Well, uh, again, thanks for having me. Can we just do the food and wine stuff and talk <laughs> about that? But <laughs> so I've been at Cravath my whole career. I was a summer associate there in 1998, came back full time in 1999. I had a little bit of an indirect kind of path to get to, to even being a lawyer. I didn't, I didn't like grow up thinking I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't have a lot of lawyers in my family that aspired to be like or anything like that. And in fact, when I got to college, I spent about the first year or so not particularly doing well at college and spent most of my time playing in a rock band. And I actually like, had a group of guys in a band and actually, believe it or not, thought we might do that as a job. And uh, as a result, my grades were pretty abysmal. And so after about a year, year and a half of being a terrible student, my dad, who was a pretty tough um, you know, great guy, but pretty tough parent as far as expectations sort of sat me down and said, if you're anticipating that I'm going to continue to pay for college, you're going to turn this around, right? And so I basically had to turn my act around and get back to this school. But just as a result of that, I didn't graduate with a particularly good GPA. And I had a really hard time finding a job coming out of college where people in my class were being consultants or investment bankers and stuff like that. And I really couldn't get a job. So I thought, well, I'll just go to law school and that'll be like a redo. I thought about maybe going to business school, but you know, you need to work before you go to business school. And the job thing was a problem in that regard. And so I went to law school as kind of a redo, not with any particular passion or drive or anything to be a lawyer. And I just really needed a second start, if you will. Got to law school and took to that. I just thought it was really interesting and I did well. And found my way to Cravath because it was and is just one of the best firms. And I, you know, I grew up in, outside of New York and wanted to get back to the New York area. thought I might want to do something in the transactional space less because I had some passion for that because who knows when you're in law school. It was really more I knew I didn't want to do litigation. Litigation just was a lot too, way too much, you know, reading and writing. It felt like doing homework all the time. And, you know, I had an undergraduate degree that was more business oriented. And so, I just thought transactional stuff might be more interesting. And I found my way to Cravath and spent the summer there and just immediately took to it. It was like the first time, other than, you know, playing in a band, you know, the the first time I felt like, wow, this is really something I could do. What did you enjoy about it and do you enjoy about it? Was it the negotiation, the intensity of the deal process, the intellectual challenge of crafting the merger agreement? I mean, it's really all of the above. I just find the M&A practice is the one that 
requires the most of you, in my opinion. You know, you have to be a good negotiator. You have to be a good technical draftsman. Contracts matter, as we're going to talk about. There's lots of different aspects of the law, whether it's state law or SEC stuff. And so I just felt, to me, it's you you have to be a very well-rounded and all-around person. But, you know, as I've gotten older, the thing that keeps me interested in it is the advisory piece of it. It's just become much more complicated and hard to be a public company. And when you're doing a transaction, a big M&A transaction, obviously, stakes couldn't be higher and the spotlight on the board and the company can't be brighter. And it's just gotten more complex. And I find that the advisory piece, taking a board through something perhaps that they're not as used to every day, helping them navigate that and getting them home safely is the thing that I actually find to be the most interesting. And it's also the one that I think is not as commoditized, right? It's you've seen so many aspects of the law that have become really commoditized and it's all about who's the lowest cost provider. But giving good advice, being able to speak to boards, being able to communicate complex things in, in plain English so they can make a decision, you know, being a counselor, like that that part of it is the part that I find to be found to be and still find to be the, the most interesting and fun. And certainly throughout your career, shareholder activism has been a huge challenge for companies. In recent years, that's moved to a focus on ESG. Could you talk a little bit about that, what boards are facing with regard to ESG now and how they're thinking about it? Yeah, to me, it's you know really interesting topic because I think if you go back a bunch of years, if you think about kind of you know ESG going back a bunch of years, and I've been lucky enough to do this now twenty plus years, ESG used to be one of those things that people like viewed as an annoying thing, right? You know, you would get a shareholder proposal about something. It was usually from some kind of you know investor that had a, a very narrow agenda, and the board would just sort of like wave it off or think it was annoying or or, or whatever. And the fact that now it is something that is just pervading all of corporate America, I actually think is a really interesting thing. And I don't think that boards anymore, nor do I think that they, that they are, but I don't think boards anymore can just kind of wave it off as just a thing, right? You know, like, oh, this is something we have to deal with in an annoying way. So it is a really interesting, you know, the way that this has become such a, a center point or focal point of how companies think about managing themselves, I actually think is a really interesting thing. And we really are spending a lot of time with boards thinking about, okay, so ESG, like, yeah, we get what that is. Well, how do we, how do we respond to that? How do we proactively manage the company um, in that way? How do we actually think that these ESG things, which people can and view them as like a social agenda, but how do we think about them and tie them to actually the long-term value of the company? Because at the end of the day, if you're a board, you've got to tie it all back to, to long-term value. And so, I think that's a really interesting thing that we're spending a lot of time with companies on. And, and, I, and I personally find it to be very interesting. So how much of this is coming from large shareholders, many of them index investors, the, the Black Rocks of the world? And how much do you see as a change in the mindset of directors and senior managers themselves that they need to think differently about how they run their companies in this regard than they would have a decade ago or than their predecessors would have a generation ago? Yeah, I mean, I think that the bringing up the Black Rocks and the vanguards and State Streets is hugely important because the concentration of ownership in the index funds is, being, is really, really 
just kind of a, uh, an unbelievably powerful thing on ESG and, and frankly, other areas of corporate governance, right? And I do think that the fact that you have a group of investors, index funds that have leadership, whether it's individual leadership at BlackRock, you know, Larry Fink, or just have the entities that, that have put this as a focus and said, look, this is something that we believe is important to long-term value. I, I think is really important because yet, you know, the, these are the people that own your stock, right? I mean, it's funny. Like, I actually think that I've spent time talking to people about this. There, there are people who view this as like, ah, oh, you know, this is socialist stuff. And how does this have anything to do with capitalism? I actually think this is capitalistic, right? What this is, is, you know, the people that own your shares have decided that this is important and this is something that they are focused on and you better listen to it. And so I definitely think the concentration of ownership in the index funds is, is really important. And then if you think about activists where you have shareholder activists, that you can decide whether or not you actually think it's genuine or not. And that's, you know, that is debatable. But activists who are putting ESG on the agenda of a particular thesis or targeting companies that they believe are deficient in this area, for sure, I think that they are looking at the index funds and saying, well, geez, I need support of the investor base in whatever campaign I'm going to run. So if ESG is important to them, well, then, I, you know, why am I not leveraging that? So I... I definitely don't. I definitely think there is no coincidence that if you see shareholder activists, you know, including the top tier brand name activists pursuing ESG agendas, maybe that's because of the benevolence of the billionaire owners of the fund. But I also think that it's because they know that that's important to the investor base and they're going to leverage that. You mentioned that index funds have changed corporate governance in other ways. How have you seen those effects? Again, I think that there's just been an unbelievable focus on corporate governance over the last bunch of years that hits a lot of different topic areas, whether it's going back to, okay, we need just better and more active boards, right? We need independent committees. We need now diversity, right? Diversity not only of skills, but also gender diversity or racial diversity or now ESG. Like, I definitely think that the index funds have been at the forefront of that because they're vocal, right? They're vocal and you have to listen to them. And I do think the fact of the matter is that to be, when you look at your shareholder base, you say, okay, the retail investors will go this way and the active managers will go this way. And the index funds used to be pretty reliable. And now seeing definitely the index funds being more independent. And I think that given the concentration of ownership that they have in U.S. public companies and the fact that they are now expressing independent point of views, and those independent point of views are tied to and focused on governance things. Now, I definitely think that it, companies are listening to it. I mean, you can go through, right? I mean, dismantling of takeover defenses, right? I mean, that was something that boards and companies had to deal with a bunch of years ago. And, and that was a thing. And then it's things like, like I said, diversity, right? There's ESG. Like these are all things that they become themes. And they, and they tend to become themes until, and then companies kind of get in line, right? And so I think the index, index funds have definitely been pushing companies to that. And again, the vocal, the vocal nature of the funds in the sense that they're writing open letters to CEOs and they're writing white papers and they're putting out position pieces of what's important to them. I mean, if you're a public company, how can, how can you not listen to that, right? If 30% or 40% of your shareholder base is saying XYZ is important to you, you know, and then the rest of corporate America moves, you kind of got to move with them. Right. Sort of switching topics to, you know, what we've seen over the last 
six or seven months in M&A and the effect of the coronavirus pandemic on individual transactions, that's played out in largely two kinds of provisions, uh, material adverse effects provisions and ordinary course covenants. How are you thinking about these issues on your own transactions and, and how are you thinking about them in transactions that have run into challenges because of the pandemic and its effects? Yeah. I mean, it's an, it's interesting. And, and again, you know, because I've been doing this as long as I have, which, you know, I still feel like I'm 25 years old, but I guess I've been doing this for 20 years. So I guess I'm not 25 anymore. Because I've been doing this for a while, you sort of see what we're seeing now, we've kind of smoothie before, right? If you think about coming out of the financial crisis and a significant number of transactions running into trouble and buyers trying to get out of deals, and that was because of leverage. So either LBO sponsors or highly leveraged strategics trying to get out of transactions coming out of a crisis, we've kind of seen this movie before. So when you saw the pandemic hit, for those of us who've been doing this, it was not a surprise that you were going to see buyers try to figure out ways to get out of deals that didn't make sense anymore. So it's definitely something that, that I find to be interesting and, and one that we've lived through before in different, in different incarnations. And so, you know, look, if you're signing up a deal now, Things are settled a little bit, right? I think that things were a little bit more uncertain around what people were going to do, kind of like the April, May, June timeframe as opposed to now, because things seem to be sort of settling down. But, you know, yeah, deals that got signed up in the middle of the summer, for example, people were thinking about, all right, I'm looking at all these transactions falling apart around me. So so what am I going to do to address in my contract this kind of stuff? The MAE thing, I think, was we at Cravath, Never really thought that the MAE thing was really going to, you know, that was what the media was writing about, you know, kind of the legal rags were writing about right at the outset was, oh my God, is this an MAE? And to be honest with you, we really weren't, we didn't think that was really going to be where the action was. We really thought it was going to be in the operating covenant because MAE definitions have really been drafted in a way over the last bunch of years to have so many different exceptions to them that, you know, we actually felt like the, the operating covenants would be where the action is because it can be more objective, right? If it turns out that a company takes a particular action that's in violation of the negative covenants, well, that's an action that's in violation of the negative covenants. Perhaps that's more objective as opposed to trying to demonstrate that it's an MAE and that the exception doesn't apply or that it's not a disproportionate effect or whatever. And so to me, we always felt the operating covenants were going to be where the action is. And, and you see that the market kind of responds, right? I mean, if you look at agreements that have been signed up during the pendency of the pandemic, which I guess is still going on, people are addressing in the affirmative covenants, all right, how do I deal with this? What does ordinary course mean? Do I mean ordinary course consistent with past practice? Do I mean that I only have to use XYZ efforts to operate in the ordinary course? Do I need exceptions for things I need to do in response to specific, specific government action around pandemic stuff. And then in the negative covenant, you know, just negotiating for more flexibility around areas that you think you're going to need that kind of flexibility. The legal market responds pretty quickly. The other area, which you didn't mention that I think is also interesting, and I mentioned 2008, 2009, right? In that time frame, there was a lot of pressure on the provisions of the contract around financing. Mm-hmm. And you've seen a couple of situations here where deals fell apart, well, they initially fell apart because of the pandemic and buyers asserting Mac and ordinary course stuff. 
And then you saw the financing commitments fall apart because the manner in which the targets brought claims against the buyer for damages or what have you didn't comport with the terms of the equity commitment letters and guarantees. And then all of a sudden the financing falls apart. So I also think it's not only the MAC provisions and the, and the operating covenants, but it's also making sure that your, your equity commitments are tight and that if you're going to bring a claim, you do it in a manner that doesn't cause those to, to go away, which, we, which we've seen in a couple of situations. With regard to the ordinary course covenants, either on the buy side or the sell side, how detailed do you think those can be before, as a negotiator, again, for either side, you start to think that there is just too much conditionality to sign up the transaction? How much definition can you accept in in the ordinary course covenants before they become unworkable? For, for even a relatively modest amount of time between signing and closing. Yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're always going to have to live with some level of ambiguity around this kind of stuff, right? Because there's only so much you can draft around. You can't draft around every contingency. So I, I agree with you, right? It's not like we've seen 10-page ordinary course of business definitions, right? You're still going to always have to live with a little bit of of ambiguity around it. And and that's not only in this provision, it's in bunches of them, right? We have, and the M&A world has kind of lived with that ambiguity in a lot of areas forever, right? Um, so yeah, I think there is a limit to the amount that you can that you can draft around. But I think that what's more important, perhaps between, you know, in this particular topic is, have you addressed the topic, right? Like, are we not going to address this topic at all, right? If you're a seller, are you not going to at least try to think through, okay, do I need an exception? You know, how much time do I need between, do I think it's going to be between signing and closing? And in the negative covenant, what do I think I might need to do, right? Or if I'm in the affirmative covenant, how am I going to define ordinary course of business? Am I going to refer to my past practice? Am I going to talk about efforts to do it or not? I mean, you, you definitely as a target most certainly are going to raise those kinds of things and at least have a conversation and talk about them. Because if you address the topic and address the theme, then you're better off than if it just doesn't mention anything at all on the sell side. But yeah, look, there's a limit to it, right? There's definitely a limit to it. And look, what's also interesting about what's gone on, right, is we don't really have any answers yet. So we, we don't have a judge telling us, we think ordinary course of business means ordinary course of business on a clear day. Or we actually think that ordinary course of business means it does take into account an unprecedented situation like that. So we also don't really have any answers yet. If we do get those answers, then obviously we'll be help people like us draft agreements to address those things. Do you have an instinct one way or the other on how a Delaware court might come out on the question you just posed? Is, is ordinary course on a clearer day or is it ordinary course in the middle of the financial crisis in 2008, the middle of the coronavirus pandemic in 2020, if it's a tech company, the middle of the crash of the tech bubble in 2000 and 2001? I, I, I don't know, right? I mean, my, what my Delaware courts, if we're talking about Delaware courts of equity, and so I do think about that. And that is something that I always kind of come back to, which is if you're a Delaware judge and you're looking at a situation where this is an unprecedented thing, but it is not situation specific to this particular company and the buyer is going through the same thing and the buyer is taking the same kind of actions. I, I kind of come back to the fact that Delaware judges are, are, are the Chancery Court is a court of equity. 
And while they're supposed to read the contract in the four corners, I got to believe that they'll think about those things and take those things into account. So that's kind of what I would say my instinct is. But then again, I could be wrong. I mean, if you go back, the concept of ordinary course is not, it's not a novel thing. You know, there was the Cooper Tire case, which analyzed the question of ordinary course where a target company was dealing with a labor issue coming out of the transaction and were the actions taken by the company consistent with the ordinary course because it was a totally novel and unusual thing. Now, that was situation specific to the company as opposed to the entire industry or economy. So who knows? But my instinct is that you know, if you're a judge, it might be hard to say, look, I'm going to construe ordinary course in this very narrow way on a clear day where not only are you target dealing with this that's in a manner that's consistent with the industry, but also your buyer is too and doing the same things. I don't know. That's, that's kind of what my instinct is, but you know, I could be wrong. And finally, on this topic, you mentioned the private equity buyouts in which PE buyers walked in 2007 and 2008 when the financing market seized up because those deals were conditioned on financing. That led, obviously, very quickly to a, to a much greater focus on the part of targets on certainty of financing. Are there any changes in approach that you think we'll see as a result of how deals have been challenged over the last six months? I think that people will be more careful. Buyers have been all watching similar kind of portfolio of claims to get out of the deal, right? They've been arguing operating covenants, affirmative and negative. They've been asserting MAC claims. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you saw a couple of things like you reach the access covenant or whatever. But the main focal points, right, have been MAC and operating covenants. And I think the operating covenants are probably better bets than the MAC. So that's what you see on the buy side. On the sell side, what you saw is targets all lodging the same responses, which is, it's not a MAC because the exceptions apply. Everybody's dealing with this. This is industry, economy. I'm not disproportionately affected. And on the operating covenants, I'm either doing everything that everybody else is supposed to be doing. So how can you tell me I'm not operating any ordinary course? Or alternatively, if I didn't do those things, I complied strictly with the letter of the contract. So that's those claims on, on the for and against of what, what you've been seeing. To me, <laughs> what you are going to see, I believe, is people be more careful in how the targets file their claims because the situations where people have brought claims that are not permitted under the terms of the equity commitment letters, because they're not permitted to retain claims, whatever defined term is, to say that, oh, that was a Scrivener's error and that didn't work. I think that you're definitely going to see targets be more careful as they should in coordinating between the litigation and the M&A people to say, Look, when we're, when we're coming up with our litigation strategy and the claims are filing response, how do we make sure we do it in a manner that actually comports with the terms of not only the merger agreement, but also the financing paper? So I definitely think those couple of examples will make people be more careful in that way, just as some of the litigation that you saw in 2008 and 2009 around the remedies provision as far as, okay, can I get specific performance or not? When you saw some decisions come down in ways that weren't favorable to targets, you saw people be more careful about how to draft back part of the contract where you're dealing with the remedies. And, and so people learn lessons. I mean, like I said, the M&A community tends to learn from its mistakes, not always, but and when you see those things happen, you see people focus and tighten up areas where things go awry. So finally, you have a huge passion for wine. How did you get into wine and what do you enjoy drinking? 
Oh, okay. Well, uh, the fun part. Um, <laughs> well, I, what I got into wine from my dad, really, my dad was a, is a great guy and, and unbelievably smart and spent a lot of time with us as kids. And my dad, you know, was a wine collector. Now, my dad, you know, was not a wealthy guy. So it's not like, you know, he had this amazing wine collection going back 50, 60 years, but he just collected wine and stuck it in the basement. And I got into it because, you know, I you know drank beer in college and all that. But, you know, when I started coming home for the holidays and things out in college and noticed that my dad was drinking wine, I started drinking wine at dinner with him. And I got an appreciation for it because I just remember being at, at dinner with him. It was a holiday and, you know, the wine was amazing. And I remember saying, wow, this is great. You know, what is it? And it was a California cab that he had bought. And it was from the 80s, right? Now, you know, this is now in the, in the late 90s that I'm talking. And he had just bought it and held on to it. And I remember being, wow, this is amazing. And he said, well, I actually didn't spend that much money on it. If you have the patience to buy things and hold on to them, they turn out to be great. And so that, I just have a very vivid memory of that. And so when I started, I was an associate and had just a little bit of money, not a lot. I just started buying wine and putting it in the basin and holding on to it. And so I started early because of my dad and, and just over time, when you, it's like anything else. It's like compounding, right? When you buy something and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And so I have stuff in my collection now that I, I paid 20 or 30 bucks for. But if you looked at it on a wine list in a restaurant now, it would be several hundred because I bought it a bunch of years ago. So that's kind of how I got into it, you know, really through my dad. It's actually pretty rewarding because he's, you know, my dad's older now and doesn't buy wine anymore because he's in his seventies. And so now the table has turned, right? Whenever time he comes over for dinner, he's super excited. He wants to know what wine I'm going to serve him. So it's pretty fun. And, and it sounds like he studied wine. He, he was kind of a student of it. Is that a part of your approach as well, where there's a, an almost academic interest in the various aspects of it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my favorite wines now are from France. Um, and I remember being super intimidated by French wine, right? The labels are in a different language. And a French wine label is actually totally understandable if you know how to read it. But I remember at the time, California wines are easy. They're in English. The, the names are all things that you can remember. And French wine was super intimidating to me. And I remember being like, okay, well, I'm going to approach this like, like anything else. I'm going to learn about it. And I remember buying a bunch of books and doing the reading. And so I definitely approached wine. I mean, look, at the end of the day, you got to like the way it smells and tastes, but I definitely approached it in an academic way saying, okay, how am I going to navigate this? And so I remember buying a bunch of books on France. And then once I felt like I knew my way around Burgundy, then it's like, okay, what do I also like? Well, I, I like wines from Italy. Well, I don't know anything about this. So let me get some books on that. And, and so I definitely think that you can approach it in an academic way because then it makes it just less intimidating and less scary. Right. And then you can communicate and then you can have fun with it. You can sit in a restaurant and talk to the sommelier about, you know, wines. And, and even if you just have the basic vocabulary, you can really be explored in a different way. So I definitely approach when I'm learning about a particular new region, studying up because it just makes it a little bit more navigable. And, and again, I think a lot of people can be intimidated by wines from other parts of the world because it's still one of these really kind of wonky things, right? You know, wines in France have to be done a certain way and, Wines in Italy have to be done a certain way depending on the region. And that can be intimidating to people until you actually get your arms around it and then it kind of all makes sense. You know, so I, I definitely approach it that way. And and what are you drinking now that you're you're particularly enjoying? Well, I mean, that's one of the nice things about this pandemic, right, is that, uh, you know, I've been stuck at home like everybody else. So I've actually gone deep into the cellar to actually drink things that maybe I would have held to a 
for a, a special occasion. <laughs> so I guess the special occasion is let's drink our way through this global pandemic. So, you know, I, I like I said, I've been buying stuff and holding stuff for a long time. So I've really been drinking a lot of my French stuff. You know, my favorite wines are from Burgundy. I just think the craftsmanship of it is just extraordinary. I just think there's so many producers that are really doing amazing things with really trying to adhere to getting the most out of the grape, having a tie to the region, to the earth. And I just, so most of my stuff that I've been drinking during this uh, global pandemic has been my French Burgundy. I guess I'm approaching it like, well, if the world's going to come to an end, I might as well drink my good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks. Thank you so much, Damien, for, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, I look forward to when we can actually sit down face-to-face and have a bottle of wine together. Absolutely. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.